Welcome to the By Way of Commandment podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the finer points of his doctrine. Join us as we study the gospel through the scriptures and standard works of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Welcome everyone to the By Way of Commandment podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Ryder. I'm very excited to be here with uh, a friend of mine. I hope I can call you friend now. Of course. Um, Jared Davies of the YouTube channel, Christian Homestead. Um, If you have not checked out his channel on YouTube, please do so and go like and subscribe and watch all of his videos. He puts out some of the most fantastic content on all things last day's prophecies. Um, second coming of Christ, all all that wonderful stuff that we love here on this channel, uh, he does, uh, and then some. So um, please, when you have a chance after this, listening to this, please go check out Christian Homestead on YouTube and subscribe. You're welcome. Um, so Jared, I've yeah. been wanting to have you on for quite a while, but I've been a little bit chicken. Um, mostly, I have kind of a, a weird schedule, and so just for me getting things um, kind of timed out properly so I can have a guest on is really rare. Um, and I've just recently, for those listening, um, I have moved all of my episodes of the podcast now over to YouTube so you can listen both on your whatever podcast app you normally listen to, as well as now you can also watch on YouTube moving forward. So um, I really wanted to have you on to talk about something that I think is probably one of the most misunderstood topics in all of last day's scriptural prophecy. And that has to do with the gathering of Israel and specifically the 144,000. You've put together quite a long list of videos on this particular subject. So I wanted to ask you before we get into the the meat and potatoes of that, um, what got you into studying the last days, um, what, what got you really interested in all of this and not only interested in studying it, but also doing a whole YouTube channel on it? Well, I've always been interested in the second coming. And I I think a lot of people are in the church because like we're very second coming oriented as a church. Um, so I've always like been interested in it. And then recently, you know, there was like a big almost like revival, I would say, when it comes to like interest in the second coming due to a couple popular timelines uh, that came out in 2020. And I came across that and I was like, whoa, okay, yeah, maybe things are a lot sooner than what I thought. Like I thought I knew things pretty well. And so I, I just did a lot of like listening to YouTube channels and hearing what everybody had to say and uh, started listening to like other like Christian other Christians uh, from other faiths just to see, like get a feel for like what they think and stuff like that. And um, over time, I just kind of um, started kind of collecting ideas in my head. And then just one day out of the blue, uh, because my normal job, I'm a graphic designer and I'm a freelancer. So that's, that's what I do. Um, Have all the time in the world to listen to YouTube as I'm designing, you know, and um, but just one day out of the blue, I just kind of got, I guess you would say maybe a prompting to start up a channel. And so I just went for it and um, man, it just, it exploded and it's given me all the time in the world to just like really dig into these things. And I've wanted to like iron out a lot of these things that I haven't like fully understood, like, a, like the 144,000, because, 
you're right. I'm not sure if it is very well understood. Uh, there's a lot, I hear a lot of different things about them. And so I just decided to try and figure out for myself what I could find out. So was there any, uh, I know you mentioned of the timelines that really kind of became popular about two years ago, all over YouTube, people were posting and reposting all these different timelines. And I can think back to a few of them that I saw. And I think maybe the, maybe the first one I saw was the Jody Stoddard one. Mm-hmm. Um, which I know a lot of people have since seen and, and shared. And I feel like you're probably right. They're like just right about 2020, there seems to be this resurgence within the church of people who are looking for the signs of the second coming and trying to piece together things that may or may not have been fulfilled certain ways um, and trying to put together these timelines. Um, was there anything in particular, because you mentioned that studying the second coming or just being interested in it has kind of always been with you. Um, is there anything in particular that you can recall being particularly, uh, interested in or curious of, uh, leading up to this point? I was mostly really interested in just like the signs of the times as far as, like natural disasters, wars, things like that, things happening in the news. Like that's always what I would be my kind of like, I'd watch for that and think about something would happen that I'd be like, oh my gosh, is this a sign of the time? So for example, when Hurricane Katrina happened or when I was on my mission and there was a big tsunami in Indonesia, my ears perked up and I was like, wow, this is probably a sign of the times. And so it was mostly that. And then whenever I had time, I'd like, I would do scripture study and think about things, but I never really like got into it really heavy except for maybe one time when I was like around 12, maybe 13 years old, my dad had a CD ROM, which was a, it was like a collection of like all these different books from all these different authors. And I was like, wow, this is so cool because the internet was around, but it it wasn't as good as it is now. And so having the CD-ROM, I went through and I started reading the books that had to do with the second coming. And and so, you know, I, I had like a familiarity with like the things that are supposed to happen leading up to the second coming. But um, mostly what I was looking at uh, up until recently was just simply the things happening in the news and, and also in the church, too. Yeah, I think. Um, I think President Nelson becoming president of the church was kind of a big uh to use his term a hinge point i think in the the way that we members of the church think of uh or reference the second coming um because i remember like during um my youth growing up we might hear some things there here and there or scriptures would be discussed um over the pulpit and like general conference but it wasn't like this um it wasn't as consistent. It wasn't as um, bold and, and you know, as in your face as I think a lot of the topics of discussion have been the last few years with President Nelson. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember, and this is just maybe my faulty memory, but I don't recall um, even President Monson discussing the second coming very often, if at all. Um, and President Hinckley, I remember after 9-11 uh that that following conference um in october he had mentioned 
uh, in one one of his talks, he had mentioned 9-11 and wars and rumors of wars and all these things. And I w- don't know if it was that specific talk, but it was that conference where he also quoted Joel chapter two about the spirit of the Lord being, um, uh, uh, what's the word used? Basically um, given out to the whole world to basically spread out to to all the world. And that basically... Um, you know, your young men shall dream dreams, your old men shall have visions and so on and so on, right? All these things. And he basically said in that, in that talk, these things are now fulfilled. Yeah. And I do remember that as being like, whoa, that, okay, that's something to like pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there seemed to be kind of like this long drought for the last like 10, 15 years of not hearing very bold statements like that um, over the pulpit. So my my ears really perk up with President Nelson and all the things that he's been discussing this last few years. But I think my my first, like, I guess if you want to call it like an, an awakening or whatever, uh, my first time really feeling like the second coming of Christ is probably sooner than I had originally thought was on my mission. Um, I served back in 2010 to t- 2012. And, um, I remember, uh, there was a series of a few natural disasters. Um, we had some earthquakes and stuff on my mission. I served in Southern California. Um, so that wasn't like a big deal to have some earthquakes every now and again. Um, but I remember, um, first there was the 2011, um, what was it in, in, uh, Japan, the tsunami tsunami which yeah. was kind of a big deal. And I, I was like, okay, that's something to write down. Um, and I, I wrote down a few little personal notes about that day, um, seeing it on the news and stuff like that. And then really um, quickly after that, like within probably a few weeks, um, we, my companions and I uh, were out, we were supposed to go to dinner and, um, they canceled on us like last minute. And so we didn't have enough time to like go home and make stuff. Cause we had an appointment after. And so we, there's a, a Wendy's restaurant just around the corner from us. So we're like, okay, we'll just go hit up the Wendy's. So we're ordering our burgers and whatever. And I sit down and they have a couple TVs on either side of the, the room. And one has like MTV on, and then the other one has like the news, but it wasn't a news station I recognized. It was like an international news station. It wasn't Fox, wasn't MSNBC or CNN or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the program, they were talking about how busy construction has gotten in Israel uh, around Jerusalem because thousands upon thousands of Jewish people are coming and moving to Jerusalem. And this is like 2011. Yeah. And I like instantly, it's it's one of the mo- those weird moments where like the spirit just kind of like hits you. Um, and it's just like, yes, I'm gathering my people home and the gathering of Israel is a real thing and it is happening and you're a part of it. And it was just like this overwhelming kind of sensation of the spirit testifying the the gathering of israel and the gathering of judah back 
back to Israel. And that was just really, really cool. And ever since then, I've been like really looking to all these different natural disasters and all sorts of other things to try and piece together, okay, what could or could not fit in some way uh, with the scriptures and what the scriptures tell about the second coming. And so that's really kind of my awakening to all of this. Yeah. And I had a couple of years ago, probably about the time that I started seeing these timelines that you mentioned, um, I had the feeling like, Hey, you should probably like share your testimony on like a podcast or a YouTube channel or do something like that. And I'm like, but I don't, I don't have a timeline. I'm, I'm not the timeline guy. Um, yeah. and, and, and maybe we can talk about that another time, but like to me, the timelines I think are fun and they're cool to look at, but I don't put all of my eggs in, in the basket of some of these timelines as like, XYZ must happen before ABC and, and so on and so on. Yeah. And it's like these perfectly <laughs> neatly constructed and organized timeline of events. I don't think it's that neat and clean. I think there's a lot of overlap and a, a lot of things happening simultaneously. Mm. So I'm like, at the time I was like, I'm not a timeline guy. So what would I even put out there? And it wasn't until uh, a year ago that I'm like, no, you just need to do it. And it doesn't have to be timeline. Just, talk about the things that you've studied and, and cause there's other people out there like you and like Troy Abels, who I absolutely love his channel. Yeah. Um, and, and like Walter Palmer and several other channels out there that are just really good. And it's more about building a community of people who are actively seeking the Lord and his return um, more than just like being the guy who knows X, Y, Z. Yeah, because um, like I've said before on my channel, like if you don't do it, no one's going to do it. And I think that there is a need right now for people like you and me. I, I understand that not everybody can do it, but uh, you and me are within the circumstances in which we can do YouTube channels, podcasts and and have a community because you know, if we weren't around, then everybody would just be kind of left to themselves and they'd, they'd still have a testimony and know that the second coming is getting closer. But uh, I think that there is a service in doing this because we're able to compile information and maybe bring things up that they don't have the, the time themselves, like really dig into really deep. And it just helps everyone know that they're not alone. Like it's not just them that feels the second coming is close. It's there's a bunch of us. And, and it's funny because it's not just us in the church. Today, I was I was talking to um, my friend, Rabbi Gerfin. I got set up on this like program through Israel 365 to talk with a rabbi every other week, which is kind of weird, but it's really cool. And yeah, that's awesome. Talking, yeah. And he was talking about how things are just like really speeding up. And I think every a lot of people are starting to kind of realize that we're in a completely different phase uh, when it comes to you know, the end times. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I've really noticed that quite a bit with some of the Jewish channels that, um, I come across is, uh, you know, big ones and small ones, not just, you know, Israel 365 and, and temple Institute and stuff like that, but even like very small channels like mine of Jewish rabbis and others talking about like, Hey, here's some things that may be evidence that we're in the end times. And this is getting really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, with them in particular, with the Jews, 
it's like at a fever pitch because they're expecting Messiah to make an appearance and they're all ready for the temple to be built. And just there's a lot of things happening on their side that they're very excited about. Everything from how many Jews are ascending the Temple Mount because it's starting to happen at record numbers. Um, you know, there there's the training of the Kohanim, which are the priests. And like that's like really, really underway. They have a registry. They're like really getting things all ramped up. There's stuff going on right now with the Dead Sea where there's like physical changes that are starting to take place. There's like these sinkholes that are starting to show up uh, in that area. And um, I guess there is some fresh water. Well, no, I, I I saw like a video. I have to like remember what it was, but there was like some like <clears throat> fish that were near uh, the Dead Sea. Like they, I don't think that they could go like into it, but it, it's like kind of like coming to life, just like prophecy says. And yeah. there's just like all these things. You know, and then the government in Israel, you know, it, there was this weird thing that happened where they were they were able to oust Benjamin Netanyahu. He was in power for 12 years and through this uh, very unlikely political gambit, they were able to put together a coalition, get rid of him. But now that coalition is falling apart. So it, there's like political instability and it's just crazy over there right now. But, yeah, there, there's a lot happening. Yeah, I know you did just recently a, uh, I believe, a second video about um, the water kind of issue, the the prophecies in Revelation regarding water and um, the Dead Sea. There's the the fish. There's supposed to um, fish and sea life are supposed to die, um, and all these other things um, that are happening. And I I had to go look up a few things after your video. Um, and there's a lot of cool stuff happening there. And I, I was looking into, and I put this up on an episode, um, a few weeks ago. So it's probably two or three episodes ago for my channel, um, talking about the river Euphrates mm. and how it's been drying up for the last, uh, several, well, really decades, but, uh, quite substantially the last few years yeah. to the point that, uh, they're having a really difficult time. Um, just growing anything nearby it and a lot of farmers have had to basically let go of their their farmland and and move and it's caused a lot of problems for their agriculture over there and the fact that the great river euphrates um crosses so many of those countries over there um like it, it basically like i think from saudi arabia all the way west up through like towards israel and i may be wrong it but it, i think it goes up through syria as well um, but it crosses several countries and there's kind of this infighting between all these countries of like what to do about the river and how to kind of divvy up the, what, whatever is remaining of the agricultural land over there, because there it's just wasting away They they're losing so much of their crops and stuff like that in record numbers that they don't know what to do with it. And what's so interesting about that particular section of revelation is like, the drying up of the river Euphrates is what will prepare the way for the kings of the east to make war with Israel. Mm. And it's like, okay, so that's something to pay attention to. Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting things over there with water. And I even uh, last, oh, geez, maybe September or October. So about a year ago almost, um, there was these red pools in uh, the Dead Sea. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Do you remember seeing that? Yep. 
Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting um, because there's obviously scriptural references in Revelation about some of the sea and, and rivers and stuff being turned to blood and mm-hmm. all that. And so I started looking into that. There's several um, places, not just by the Dead Sea, but kind of all over Africa and um, Indonesia and other places that have just kind of randomly at times had these like pools of water turned red. And some think it's like, well, maybe it's the algae that's like giving off a, uh, it's reflecting uh, a different way or something like that, or maybe it's this or that, but it seems like there hasn't been a real consensus, a scientific consensus of like what's causing that. And it's not like it remains red forever. It's just like, it'll be red for a while and then just kind of like return back to normal in some places. Yeah. So there's really weird things like that happening that I'm like, okay, well write that in the books and, and pay attention to it. Yeah. There's a lot of weird, fun it, kind of things like that that are happening right now that I don't think a lot of people, uh, members of the church or, or outside the church are really even aware of. Yeah. And, uh, well, <clears throat> that's another reason why YouTube is important because for example, you have a couple great channels like, uh, Jason a, and the two preachers that compile all these things that are in the news, like they're in the news, but like the news isn't putting all these things together in a meaningful way, but these YouTube channels are. Um, and like, when you see all the stories together, it's like something's happening. Uh, everything from these like huge, just like fish kills, uh, where just all these fish are dying for various reasons, but generally having to do with the the planet warming up whether it be that there's a lack of oxygen in the water because i guess like when you heat water up some of the oxygen leaves so some of them are suffocating um but anyway you got the fish you got crazy earthquakes going on this year started off with a huge bang where we had the literally the largest explosion uh, both man-made between both man-made and natural sources the biggest one ever recorded by modern instruments in that uh, <clears throat> underwater volcano that erupted near Tonga. Um, if you go on Dutch Sins right now, I think that's his name. For, for, he's like an earthquake guy. He has a YouTube channel. It's Dutch Sense. But there's been like a bunch of earthquakes going on, like large earthquakes just within this last like 24 to 48 hours, which has been kind of unusual. So I, I feel like all the signs in nature are definitely there and of course in society and in politics and geopolitics it's which it's just it's not 2010 anymore it's not 2000 anymore we are in some kind of different phase yeah and it's i think it's easy for a lot of people um to look at any one thing and kind of brush it off like oh okay that's weird but whatever but when you start to see a pattern of things, uh, like you said, both the the natural disaster side of things, uh, geopolitical things, um, you start to see uh, the bigger picture and you start to see more puzzle pieces kind of come together, um, that it, it becomes a lot harder to just kind of start brushing these things off. Yeah. Um, they're definitely not like one-off events by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um, I, I have a quote and I kind of wanted to start off with this. Um, 
because I think it fits perfectly with what you, everything you just said. Um, and this is a quote from George Q. Cannon from, uh, this is the journal of discourses volume two. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, I'm uh, pretty sure I know this quote. You probably do. And I, you might've even shared it before on your channel. Okay, um, let's see. but it, this is probably one of my favorite clo- quotes right now, just because of everything that's happening and how a lot of the people that I talk to seem to be under the assumption that um, the, the second coming is very, very far away. We're not close at all. Um, and all of the things that are happening around the world right now, whether it be natural disasters, uh, wars, rumors of wars, all these different things that we might think of as you know, prophetic um, are just kind of like one-off instances or you know, these are things that are kind of leading up to the bigger things, but maybe aren't part of it themselves. And I always bring up this quote because I think it it perfectly encapsulates how I feel about uh, the second coming and these all these events. It says, um, quote, the greatest events that have been spoken of by all the holy prophets will come along so naturally as the consequences of certain causes that unless our eyes are enlightened by the spirit of God and the spirit of revelation rests upon us, we will fail to see that these are the events predicted by the Holy prophets. It doesn't have to be. Uh, well, I guess this is gospel according to Jacob, but it, a lot of these events, I don't think have to be these giant cinematic events in order for them to count as, as signs of the times. And I think that's probably where I want to start with with the discussion about the gathering of Israel and specifically the 144,000. Because if you ask any Latter-day Saint right now, you just pull them out of elders quorum meeting and ask them, you know, what are the things that have to happen before Christ comes? There's going to be the natural disasters and, and things like that, that will get mentioned. But in terms of like what's most relevant to the church and our, kind of uh, stewardship, our responsibility, the things that we have to do as a church. The gathering of Israel is the biggest thing that is being talked about right now. And with that comes all of these other kind of subcategories of the building of the New Jerusalem, um, Jackson County, Missouri comes up as as part and parcel of that. Um, and you have the 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 144,000 have to be ordained and all these things. And and we kind of put these in our mind. We have kind of this view of how it's supposed to go. And even for me up until maybe two ish years ago, I had a very like kind of movie theater cinematic view of how big and grand and like, um, it, you know, I guess cinematic is the only real way that I can think about it, but, very like movie like way. If this is how I was going to film those scenes as a movie director, it would just be this, Oh, you know, Jesus comes down, boom, the new Jerusalem and the city of Enoch and angels flying everywhere. And he's just kind of eeny, meeny, miny, mo picking out all the 144,000. Um, and I, the more I study about this and the more I've listened to other channels talk about this as well. Um, the more and more I'm less convinced that that's the case. And so can you, can you briefly kind of go over what, what is 
the 144,000, this concept of the 144,000, where do we kind of get it wrong? I think as, as readers of the Bible, as studiers of the Bible and the last days, what are some of the misconceptions here? Well, okay. So, um, there, there's this one kind of like monolithic school of thought uh, in the church that's been around, I think, for a long time. It, it's very kind of dogmatic. And it, it's the group of people that really, really stress that there's the 10 lost tribes hidden somewhere. Most think that it's like they're in the North Pole. Some think that they've become like a spacefaring civilization. But this group, they the 144,000 ties in to the 10 lost tribes because when you read in the book of Revelation, it talks about how 12,000 will be selected from each tribe. And so therefore, it's natural to assume, oh, well, first, you know, the, those hidden tribes have to come back and then there's going to be 12,000 selected from every tribe and then they're going to go and serve um missions like they're going to serve missions that we can't serve right now and uh i can see that train of thought uh, i think like i said this is something this like whole and i don't mean to offend anybody but if it, it feels like this kind of like dogmatic thing that's been around for a long time because this is kind of like how i was taught growing up like when i would talk to my uncles and they would talk about the 10 lost tribes and not so much the 144,000 but uh, there's a lot of people that have like <clears throat> made these like different connections using this um, theory. Okay. But I don't think that it's the only way that you can read scriptures or even what's actually happening. So, um, <laughs> okay. I, I, I wish I had pulled this up because before this video, I pulled up just like a bunch of different things, but I don't think I can't remember where I, I read this, but the 144,000 aren't necessarily missionaries, but they are doing the work of exaltation. And furthermore, uh, I just came across this just a few weeks ago. Okay. So President Wilford Woodruff, he was the one that dedicated the Salt Lake Temple. Okay. He was the president at the time. And during the dedication service, you know, they had like all these different um, different sessions so everybody could attend. But during at least one of them, he declared that the, the four angels that are waiting to hurt the earth to start bringing down the judgments and do the reaping and uh, the separation of the wheat and tares, that that had commenced as of that time, at the time of the, the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple. Now, I don't think it was actually recorded anywhere because I'm still trying to find that original source. But a, a few months later, so that was in 1893. That's when the Salt Lake Temple was dedicated. A year later, in the Young Women's Journal, which I guess was a magazine for young women uh, at the time, mm -hmm. it had a story in there of uh, called uh, Temple Workers Excursion. And so it, it tells like this little story about how Wilford Woodruff and some of the other general authorities, they went on a temple workers excursion with temple workers from the Salt Lake Temple. They went up to northern Utah on a train, just kind of had like this 
I like outing and um, several days of activities. And at the end, there was a testimony meeting and he reiterated or he repeated what he had said at the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple that those angels had been released. So when you think about those angels, because here, I'm going to have to pull up my screen here. So when you go into um, chapter seven of the book of Revelation, this is the one where it talks about the 144,000. But before before it does, this is what it says. Okay, so verse one, after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So in other words, these angels, and these are the angels that Wilford Woodruff is referring to. This fifth angel says, no, don't do anything yet until the servants are sealed in their head. And the next verse says, and I heard the number of them which were sealed and they were sealed 144, that 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And so Wilford Woodruff, he made that statement and it was recorded in the Young Women's Journal. And then later, I'm trying to see if I can find it. Joseph Fielding Smith, and at the time that he said this, he was, he was now president of the church. He remarked on President Woodruff's, you know, prophecy or what he said about the angels being let loose. And he says, quote, now I want to make some comments in regards to the statement by President Woodruff and this parable. The Lord said that the sending forth of these angels was to be at the end of the harvest and the harvest is at the end of the world. Now, that ought to cause us some very serious reflections. And the angels have been, have been pleading, as I have read it to you, before the Lord to be sent on their mission. Until 1893, the year of the, the dedication, the Lord said unto them, no. And then he set them loose. According to the revelation of President Woodruff, the Lord sent them out on that mission. Uh, what do we What do we gather out of that? Uh, that we are at the time of the end. This is the time of the of the harvest. This is the time spoken of, which is called the end of the world. So when it comes to the 144,000, and when you're reading um, chapter seven of the book of Revelation, those angels were not supposed to do what they were doing until the 144,000 were sealed in their foreheads. And so it it leads me to believe that the selection of the 144,000 had been completed by 18 or 1893. And um, that's a problem because if you're in the camp of the, the 10 lost tribes or somewhere, no, that's supposed to happen first. And it doesn't look like that's what happened. Now there could still be like a main group of 10 lost tribes somewhere, but as far as like having to wait for them to, select the 144,000. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's connected if, if that is the case. Now there's other things that happened 
uh, in the early church where uh, do you mind if I just read a couple more things? No, that's cool. I actually have um, pulled up a couple quotes. Um, so the, one of the things that I found when I was yeah. kind of doing my studies of the 144,000 um, is a quote from Joseph Smith in the documentary history of the church of uh, volume three um, where he told, and this is um, I believe a little bit after the dedication of the Kirtland temple. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I can't remember exactly how long after, but he straight up says to the quorum of the 12 in one of their meetings, uh, the Lord has already commenced in calling the 144,000. It's already happening. Yeah. And I found that very interesting because prior to that, I was in the camp of, we have to go back to Missouri. We have to build up the, the new Jerusalem there and the temple there. All of the lost tribes have to suddenly, you know, reappear and, um, and, and kind of come out from their hiding place and, then the Lord can call the 144,000. And here it is, Joseph Smith in like 1836 or something saying, no, 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 we don't have to worry about that. The Lord's already calling the 144,000. Yeah. And I felt like that was a big kind of kick in the pants to my, um, my uh, prior um, vision of how this was all supposed to go. And it all fit nicely in my head in this little bow and, um, and Joseph Smith's like, no, 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 things, things are already happening. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it is. It, and with that, I'm not going to read what I, what I was going to read. Cause it's another thing that it kind of overlaps that it's, it's another thing that Joseph Smith said, but, um, well, no, hold on. Let me say, no, I'm going to do it. Um, this is short. Yeah, no problem. The prophet also said, Shortly before his death, quote, I attended prayer meeting with the quorum in the assembly room and made some remarks respecting the 144,000 mentioned by John the Revelator, showing that the selection of persons to form the number had already commenced, end quote. And then, and then I'm reading from um, I'm reading from uh, an article written by Jar Gerald N. Lund. And then he Gerald N. Lund says. This statement would seem to indicate that this great body of missionaries may be composed of mortals and immortals together, which, yeah, maybe that that could be true, may not. Uh, there is an interesting account of a man named uh, Zadok Knapp Judd. So Zadok Judd is his name. And I have a short thing that he said. Th this is on the BYU Scholars Archive. Um, so. I'll I'll give like all these links to you and and if you watch if you're watching on my channel it's going to be in the description below. But on here it says <clears throat> difficult as it was for Zadok's mother to provide food for her family, she never forgot about their spiritual welfare. To help promote their religious growth, she took Zadok and the other boys to the patriarch, Joseph Smith senior, and each received a blessing. Because of their poor financial condition, they did not pay for the blessing to be recorded, and the boys never received copies of them. It was an important experience for them, however, and 12-year-old Zadok remembered the occasion and some of the promises through, throughout his life. He said, quote, He told me my name was recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life, and angels had charge to watch over me continually. 
in that I was one of the 144,000 that should stand as saviors upon Mount Zion in the latter days. And then he later goes on to say that he worked in the St. George Temple and he felt that indeed he was a savior on Mount Zion uh, in that calling. But anyway, <clears throat> and there's like there's like a, a thing from Orson Pratt. He was he said that there's there would be people in this congregation that would be selected, be part of 144,000 and so on and so forth. So it would seem that that part has been has been completed. I don't know so much that there were literally 12,000 from each tribe that for all I know, maybe that was the case. Maybe it wasn't. Um, there's also kind of like a numerological aspect to this because uh, again, I was just talking about this today with, with Rabbi Gerfing Jews, they have a very special understanding and relationship with numbers in, in Hebrew, um, each letter is, is a number like the way that he described it is that each letter is like a vessel and it contains both the letter and the number. So like when they write numbers, it's written in letters and they do a lot of talking through numbers. There's like numbers that we obviously are very familiar with, like seven, uh, 40, 70, uh, so on and so forth. Well, one of those numbers is obviously 12. 12 is is huge. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel. And you could also say it, re it represents the priesthood. So <clears throat> John the Revelator, talking about the future, I mean, he's talking about more than just one high priest. Like back then, it's like, no, there's only one high priest. And he works in the temple. He has a special position. He only goes in the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur. But he's like describing the future, the end times, where there would be, it's like he's saying, you guys, the future, okay, think about priesthood, times priesthood by priesthood, and then times a thousand. That's going to be what the last days are like. There are going to be tons of high priests. So it very well could be he was just trying to describe our current reality where you have all these high priests and they're all going on missions and they're doing the work of salvation. And that very first part of the church was a very crucial, critical time. And they brought in large numbers of people going on their missions to the UK and Europe and to the, to the Lamanites and all this stuff. Truly a lot of incredible things happened within those first 10, 20, 30 years uh, while Joseph Smith was still alive. So, so that's what I think about the 144,000. I, you know, um, the other thing about it is like, I really try and pay attention to what the prophets are saying. You know, I don't think that they really have like secrets that they're keeping back where it's because like, you, you think that they would kind of like make reference to the fact that the 144,000 hadn't, haven't been called yet. You know, they may not like talk about it very directly, but at least like something like, oh, we're still waiting for this to happen. But you don't find that in any church publication. You don't find it in any uh, talk. You might in the early days of the church, but that's because like it was happening back then. So 
I don't know that, that that that's that's how I came to that conclusion. Just compiling all these sources, and I I can't fault people that are in the other camp because a lot of these ideas have been around for a long, long time. But now we have the internet, and it's it's getting much easier for more of us to like really scour through these different documents and find things that maybe we weren't so aware of before there's a lot of things that are being digitized whereas before you would have had to like actually find a physical copy of a book and read it and it's much more difficult to compile so i can see the logic in the way that they think and for a time that's kind of how i thought too before i started yeah doing this yeah myself. me as well yeah uh, me as well and and i think too um we can fall into the trap of reading the scriptures and interpreting them almost too literally in in yeah. some in some ways and um that can be in its own way a stumbling block um, by not allowing us to open up our eyes and see other potential avenues by which certain things can be fulfilled. Yeah. Going back to that quote from George Q. Cannon, you know, things can happen in such a way that unless we're open to it and we are earnestly seeking to understand, uh, things can just go by and, and we'll miss it. Yeah. Um, I do have pulled up. Um, this is the New Testament student manual. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a couple interesting things here that they go over when you get to Revelation chapter seven um, in the student manual. There's, there seems to be in our reading of the book of Revelation and specifically reading about the 144,000 and their calling, whatever, whatever that mission or that calling is. Um, we read it and see, okay, these people have a very, very important, very special calling of something very grand and important. Um, the Lord seals the name of God in their foreheads and ordains them to a, a special mission of sorts. And that's got to be way more special and important than anything you or I or anybody else has done prior um, to that point. And, and we can crawl into that trap of reading it that way, but this is a couple of little things, um, real quick, if you don't mind, no, um, no. that the student manual says regarding that, because I think we can read it and fall into the trap of thinking their mission is so much bigger and grander and more important than ours. Um, that this is, this is otherworldly. It's outside of our scope. Um, and so that's why we can kind of miss the boat on, some of these other things that, that we study about. Mm. It says, um, regarding the seal of God in their foreheads, uh, in the student manual, it says, the sealing or marking of the servant of our God in their foreheads is a metaphor of their devotion, service, and belonging to God. Um, seal, quote-unquote seal, is the same term used earlier in the New Testament. Um, and I actually looked this up. It's the same word or phrasing in the Greek um, uh, New Testament, uh, whether you're talking about Revelation or a couple other places throughout uh, the New Testament, it's the same word or phrasing for seal. So it, they use it kind of synonymously. Um, and so it says here that seal is the same term used earlier in the New Testament to describe faithful baptized saints who had also received the Holy Spirit of promise. And it gives a, a couple scriptures from Second Corinthians and Ephesians um, and later in Revelation as well. And it says, bearing the seal protects the faithful from divine judgments upon the wicked. 
In this sense, the seal of God in the forehead symbolizes a protection, much like the lamb's blood that ancient Israelites in Egypt placed on their door frames to protect them from the destroying angel. Um, and then here's a quote, uh, or not a quote, but something that Joseph Smith taught. It says, uh, the prophet Joseph taught that the sealing of the faithful in their foreheads, quote, signifies sealing the blessing upon their heads, meaning the everlasting covenant, thereby making their calling and election sure. So it seems to me, and there's a couple other things um, in there that I could read, but I'll stop. But it seems to me that this calling of the 144,000, the, the actual calling and ordination of them, seems to me like a, a very synonymous with the temple ordinances, the the washing and anointing, the endowment, uh, the, the new and everlasting covenant um, being sealed to your spouse and your family. These are the, I guess, quote unquote, ordinances of exaltation, mm-hmm. right? There's baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost as kind of the ordinances of salvation. And then the ordinances of the temple are really the 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 covenants associated with those ordinances of the temple are the covenants that bind us to God uh, eternally. And that's the exaltation or exaltive um, ordinances. So when I kind of look at these verses about the 144,000 with the context of these are beings who have entered into covenant with God and done so by ordination, to follow him and do his work and the, the exaltive work of the gospel. To me, I don't see much of a difference between what I'm reading on the page and what I'm seeing when I go to the temple and see all these faithful Latter-day Saints worshiping and serving in the temple um, and then going about their lives, uh, their business and their ward responsibilities and their family responsibilities, um, keeping and maintaining their um, their testimony and, and and keeping their covenants, I see that almost kind of as synonymous with the mission of these hundred and forty four thousand. So, it, am am I way off base here? Am is this? I think you're right on. I, I think I think you're right on. Sorry, I got some commotion going on here. Yeah, no um, I think you're right on. Um, Oh gosh, I was going to just say something and I lost my train of thought. Um, I think, man, I, and I don't want to like, I don't want to insult people. I don't, but okay. I love Jews. I love them. I was just talking one to talking to one earlier today. I was a rabbi. I love them. But when Christ came the first time, they were very like there was a certain portion of the, portion of them that were very fixated on how things were supposed to happen and what the messiah was supposed to be and when it actually happened it wasn't that spectacular in terms of like the senses or the power things like that right and so traditionally that's what we refer to as missing the mark they're expecting something really, really incredible. And um, the cinematic savior. 
the the sin yeah to, the yeah come savior. riding in on a white horse wiping out the enemies of israel and proclaiming peace upon the entire world and um yeah that didn't happen for them yeah and um i feel like there's kind of that attitude and i can't say for sure because i can't i don't know all of you personally um i'm sure that a lot of you are very good people but i feel like in general in this like school of thought there's kind of that same attitude of spectacularism it's going to be amazing it's going to be incredible and um if if we're right you and me about the 144,000 they've already missed it they they missed that that event or that prophecy have has already taken place and potentially with the 10 lost tribes as well because if it is that you know they're scattered throughout the world but primarily to the north then we are them <laughs> it's us like we don't even realize that it's us according to bruce r mcconkie and i'm not going to say that he like knows all the gospel truth but in in millennial messiah his interpretation is that when the 10 lost tribes are restored like when you're talking about uh gathering scattered israel and then the the literal restoration of the 10 tribes that what it means is that they'll be restored to their original land inheritances in the land of of israel that they'll actually be back there the way that the kingdom was before um he's the only one that i've heard that from so but i i don't know i've been putting together a tracker of all these like different quotes about the 10 lost tribes and it just seems like the earlier church, they they maybe didn't understand fully, but at some point, maybe some revelation was received because now general authorities are not saying that same stuff about the 10 lost tribes, for example. So anyway, the point is, um, I'm still going to keep an open mind, but I think that there is some danger if you become like really rigid, you know, yeah, really dogmatic about it. Yeah, dogmatic. It it's just it's not it's not good um because like the only the only people that can really say that prophecy has been fulfilled or even what prophecy means are the prophets they're the, it's up to them to interpret the scriptures and so we should i see a lot of people putting things together you know this scripture that scripture this quote that quote but like we should really really focus on what the prophets are saying about those specific verses and how it's being used it just stuff like that so but yeah. as far as um that george q cannon quote it's interesting because jeffrey r holland this year said something very similar when uh they, when there was the uk trip where, where it was him elder cook and president ballard he made a statement there where he said sometimes we're so close to history that we don't even realize that it's happening it was almost like just a the same spirit of that quote from George Q. Cannon, you know? And so, yeah, because I think that sometimes people, they'll read the scriptures and they'll assume that everything is for your your viewing pleasure. It's all about you. But in this case, like if, if we're right about the 144,000, no, it's not meant for you and me to see. It's already happened. It's like that's already taken place, you know? Yeah, or or because you brought up the the numerology um, concept of the the term 144,000 as more of a title of distinction rather than a literal number of individuals 
to take part in that. Um, because there, there's that other concept of no, it's literally 144,000 individuals called, um, and and reading through um, a couple different things, the the student manual is helpful, but also you know I I feel the need to keep my eyes open and and be open to reading other 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 people's um, interpretations, and it's always usually general authorities um, that I I pay most attention to. Um, but it, it seems to be that the general consensus of most general authorities, most um, prophets and apostles in the church historically has been that it's more of a title than an actual literal number of people called to the 144,000. And so uh, that also is something to really think about too, that if it's not literally the number of people called and ordained to this special high calling um then we we i i don't know if this is necessarily correct but this is my kind of feelings about it mm-hmm. um is that maybe it's a kind of an open canon of who can be admitted into this um group or whatever whatever you want to call it and if if you and I are kind of right on the money here with what the 144,000 really is and, and um, you know, it's, it's those who have been through the temple, received the temple ordinances, made covenants to God to have literally uh, be sealed to God. Um, then to me, that kind of is every faithful uh latter-day saint who's received those ordinances and have kept those covenants kind of falls into that category um from from back then in joseph smith's day and on and so it's not like a closed canon of okay nope here's the the book of names is closed on the hundred forty-four thousand. we got all of them everybody else afterwards is just kind of like you're doing the same thing but you know, we've already reached our 144,000 quota, so we're good. Um, yeah. I, I think I tend to feel that it's more of this open canon of anybody who has made those same covenants um, by by those same ordinances is kind of part of that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case at all. It very well could be. But I'll tell you what, what I what I have not seen <clears throat> and if I find it, I'll share it on my channel, but. What I have not seen is any general authority or prophet say that we're waiting for that to happen. Nor have I. I haven't seen anything either. It, um, it never comes up. Now, let's pretend, let's say that that was the case. So there there literally has to be 12,000 from each tribe. So like at this next conference, if President Nelson was to say, okay, this is the time spoken of in scripture. Uh, we are going to call 12,000 from each tribe. So you'll receive direction from your stake president, uh, whatever. If that happened, that would wake the entire church up. Even people that are like inactive or have distanced themselves from the church. That would wake up. That would wake up a lot of people outside the church as well. Yes. And the feeling that I get is that the signs of the times are only really recognized by people that are watching for it so in other words 
it doesn't seem like there's going to be any like very right on the nose um you know th this is a sign of the times like there there's always going to be a way that people can kind of like write it off but i feel like if that happened if there was that announcement in conference or if the 10 lost tribes came from wherever it would kind of right like rob people of the what seems to be like no um it's going to be a surprise for the wicked and it's not going to be for the righteous. But if you had like this unknown group and we're the only ones that like really talk about the 10 lost tribes, then I feel like there'd be a lot of people that'd be like, it's like, it's like if they were to see the, the gold plates, the, the gold plates were taken because like there has to be an opportunity for you to exercise faith rather than converting to the church because, Oh yeah, well you can't dispute gold plates. It's kind of the same thing. If like all of a sudden the 10 tribes come, because I'm not aware of any other, christian church that or even the jews themselves that are expecting 10 lost tribes to come from an unknown unknown location right so, yeah i i know of a few different denominations that also kind of um delve into the concept of the the lost tribes of israel being gathered and that's obviously a all over the old testament a biblical prophecy of the end times um, but they don't have this concept of they're in a large group somewhere hiding and they'll be uncovered at some future day and come back to Israel. Um, it's it's more of a um, the, the similar idea that we have of the Lost Tribes kind of assimilated into other groups throughout history and are being spiritually gathered as they um, as as they make and keep covenants with the Lord. Um, through his church and so um that this concept of like one large body of israelites um being hidden somewhere and then just being uncovered and coming down from the north country and reclaiming their land and all this stuff that's not a concept that i hear anywhere outside of our faith and so um and also, to your point, I think if that were to happen, that would kind of rob people of the test of faith um, or the exercise of faith in a way. Because if you saw a group of thousands of people just kind of appear out of nowhere, whether it's from space or from like Antarctica, and they have some prophets with them that, you know, like Moses in the wilderness, you know, smash the rock and, and the highway of ice covers the sea and they come across down to America and whatever, like that would be so grand and bonkers that it would be on every news station around the world. You could not hide from it. You would, there would be nowhere you could go that you wouldn't hear about this. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, that would almost kind of rob people of the test of faith. Um, and if we had people join the church because of something like that, um, I, I won't pass judgment and say that they're, they're not worthy of, of joining the church or that they're not exercising faith by doing so, but I think that would be a much more shallow uh, version of faith than the, the faith that we hear about in Scripture. Yeah. 
just like if you saw the gold plates it's the right. reason why the gold plates were taken up well probably one of the few reasons and you know uh yeah our church we have we that you can see how that belief would come to be because it talks about that we'll receive their scriptures and we will but it doesn't have to be delivered to us by living people uh Del i did a video where down h oaks in no it wasn't 2004 i i can't remember but anyway i did a video about it he talked about how the lost sea scrolls are an example of how additional scripture uh can be brought to light you know and he made that statement because a lot of people assume oh we're going to have their scriptures and their prophets therefore you know they have it somewhere but no it could the scriptures could be in a cave somewhere uh, they could be in russia they could be whatever um another thing is <clears throat> you know they'll point to third nephi how christ said that he was going to go to another group and visit them and there's no problem with that you know in the year let's say 34 or whatever 34 ad some, somewhere around there by that point the tribes had left northern israel for it had only been about 721 years well no more closer to like 800 years and i'm sure that they still they still were intact and had their identity like the if there was like a main group or several main groups but the thing is, so Christ could easily have gone to them at that time. They still knew who they were. But the thing is that if you study history over time, you, you get these different religious movements like Christianity, for example, and Islam that happens in uh, the 600s, like the 7th century AD. And uh, the Muslims weren't maybe the best when it came to religious tolerance. And so if you're a smaller group, and you're within that territory that they conquer, it's probably either convert or die or go somewhere else, you know? And then the same with the rise of the Christian church, there's all sorts of history about forced, forced uh, conversions or expulsions or whatever. So for like a relatively smaller group of people, I'm assuming that that's probably what happened. And, and it seems like that is what happened to the Pashtuns in Afghanistan, because uh, within the Pashtun tribe, they have a belief that they are Israelites, that they are descended from Israel, but they're Muslim. But they do like these Jewish practices that um, they don't conflict. It doesn't conflict with Islam, but it, they have a, sp a specific name for that law that they abide by. So they, they hold it in like a higher regard than islamic law so if like for example in islam you could uh like you could eat a camel if you needed to but the pashtuns don't because it would be forbidden according to halakha or the the kosher mm -hmm. standards uh because it, it because of the type of animal that a camel is and so what most likely happened with them is that some of them went east and they eventually ended up in afghanistan and then Islam comes on the scene and then they're converted and then they just like stay that way. So their scriptures can easily come back um, at any point, whenever the Lord deems, deems it the time for them to come back. For all we know, they could be in the Vatican archives or some in the hands of some other organization that doesn't want them to be known. 
Um, and then Bruce R. McConkie has an interesting comment about the, the profits. It, I'm not going to go into that because it's a little bit convoluted, but it's in. Uh, yeah, that could be a whole nother a whole nother episode on its own. Yeah. So not everything necessitates that there's still right now a group hidden somewhere. They did exist. They, Christ visited them. They had scriptures. But, you know, 2000 years is a long time and things happen, you know. Right. So anyway. And I, uh, the other thing, too, that I think about when you talk about scripture, um, we know that these lost tribes will have their own scripture. Um, I I think that that could very easily be made up of several components. You, you talked about these different groups of people throughout history who have assimilated into other cultures um, or ended up in different places. They probably have records of their people somewhere and it just hasn't been uncovered yet. And then I think also too, um, in a very real way, patriarchal blessings, are our own personal scripture. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about the scripture of the lost tribes of Israel, how many members of the church throughout the world are of different tribes who receive their patriarchal blessing of personal scripture to them? I think that that in a, in a way, I feel like that also counts as part of scripture of the lost tribes. Um, it might not be scripture in the sense of uh, uh, one singular volume of records from a, uh, a one group of people at a time. Uh, but it is individual personal scripture to those people who receive it and who are also of all different tribes of Israel. Yeah. That I had never thought of that before. And that's, that's an interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've done, for anyone that isn't familiar with my channel, I did a an, an anonymous poll of what tribe are you from, according to your, to your patriarchal blessing. And I have everybody except for uh, Zebulun and Asher, I think. I think those are only two that I'm missing, but everyone else showed up, you know, and Sister Nelson made, made mention of uh, how we have all these tribes that have shown up in russia at the very least like she came across someone from each of the tribes except for levi when they were in russia in 2016 so they're here and, and one interesting thing about my my poll is that after ephraim and manasseh the next uh biggest biggest groups are judah benjamin and levi and those three tribes are what we typically call today jews those are the three main tribes that make up the Jewish people. Yeah, which, the the Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah was predominantly those three um, tribes. Yeah, and I would say Simeon as well. I don't know why no one ever mentions Simeon because like he never shows up anywhere, but Simeon was south and they were encompassed by Judah. And from what I, I gather, scholars believe that they were just kind of assimilated over time into Judah, but... Simeon is like there too, but yeah, those are like the three, four tribes and they're the next biggest group in my poll. Like my poll isn't necessarily representative of the whole world, but it's mostly limited to English speakers watching YouTube, but yeah, it's still kind of interesting. No, it's really cool. I did your poll poll originally when you um, had, had first put it up and 
Um, it, I kind of figured most people would be from one of the tribes of Joseph, predominantly Ephraim, which mm-hmm. tended, which kind of panned out that way. Yeah. Um, but it is really cool to see just how many other tribes are represented in this relatively small uh, pool of, of uh, pollsters or people who who did the, this poll. And yeah. um, I remember on my mission, uh, I served with a woman who was from uh, Romania and she was like, I want to say like Gad or something. Wow. Um, and then I had the very first missionary to ever come out of the country. Jordan uh, was in our mission. Um, and he and his sister were the very first two missionaries to ever come from that country. Um, and it, it was at times it was kind of, it had its struggles because they didn't really understand the concept of missionaries or what missionary work was like because yeah. they didn't have missionaries there yeah. and nobody from there had ever served a mission. They were the first ones. And so they had to do some like more extensive training um, in the MTC before they could go out just because they didn't have any concept of what missionaries were. Yeah. Um, but uh, they too, I can't remember what tribe they were from, but it, it was another, um, another tribe that we don't really think of. I don't know if it was like Naphtali or Zebulun or something, but it was a, a very different tribe than anything I had heard um, growing up. Cause we always think of, you know, uh, Ephraim, Manasseh, um, maybe Judah we think of, but some of these other tribes, we just kind of think, Oh, they're, they're out there somewhere. We know they're out there, but I don't know anybody from one of those tribes. And I was on my mission that I got to meet some of these people that from very different tribes, which was kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. There's this one girl on my channel, a subscriber. She's from Simeon. She shared that with me. And I was like, that's cool. It's the first time I've ever talked to someone from Simeon. Um, There's one guy on my mission. He was from Judah. But yeah, you don't come across him too much, I, but, but maybe it just depends on what part of the world. I, I'd be really interested to see what it's like over in Russia. There was somebody that told me that her, I want to say it was like her grandpa or maybe uncle that was one of the first mission presidents in Russia. And she, she's going to, she offered to like hook me up with him. And so I'm, I'm hoping to maybe do an interview with him and see if he can give me, give me any insight. As yeah, that'd be cool. And, I'd be interested. I would be interested to see if like the church keeps track, if it, if they have like a master report that breaks down how many members there are in each tribe. Cause I, I feel like if I was prophet, that's something that I, I would want to know, but. Well, I know. So I, I think the only way you would know that outside of genealogy work would be a patriarchal blessing. And I, believe i can't remember what year it was but i believe some point in the 70s i think they started keeping records um of all the patriarchal blessings but i have no idea if they keep track of specifically uh the lineage declared in every uh patriarchal blessing but that would be really cool if you could like ask the archives department like hey you have all these patriarchal blessings sitting here in these files. Ever thought about going through them and tallying them up? Like oh, that'd be gosh. 
I, I would love it if, if they had that. That'd be so I, cool. I'd be like a kid in a candy store, I think. Yeah. But of course, those are, I have to come back down to reality. Those are not my blessings. Those are very personal, sacred blessings for individuals. Yeah. Um, so to just kind of go through them willy nilly like that would obviously not be the most, um, uh, not, not be the best thing. Yeah. Um, but either way, at some point, uh, you know, once the second coming happens, I assume that, uh, what tribe you're from is probably going to come more into play. The reason I say that is because for one, it, it seems like they are going to get their tribal lands back in the land of Israel. Um, I don't know if like some Ephraim and Manasseh would go there since like America is, is for Joseph. So I don't know if like they, they, there'd still be some there probably. I don't know. Um, Brad Wilcox earlier this year, he gave like this fireside where he was, he was talking about the concept of what the tribes will be like uh, after the second coming, how like, and, and I'm, I'm roughly you know, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said something to the effect that um, President Oaks said that Israel is the government of God in that that's really going to take uh, effect during the millennium and that each tribe will have certain responsibilities. So right now, Ephraim is primarily in charge of the leadership and gathering Israel, but once the second coming comes, uh, something could happen where the Lord is like, okay, Ephraim, thank you for your service, doing what you did. Now you're going to be in charge of medical. And that's literally what he said. You know, maybe he just didn't have a good example off the top of his head, but that's what he said. And so it, it leads me to believe that maybe we'll be more open with our tribes um, in the second coming, but but yeah, this know. is this is something I've really thought about a lot, and I don't have any real solid answers for. Um, I'm I'm actually kind of in the early stages of writing a book about the office of the patriarch and patriarchal blessings, yeah. and going through the history of the patriarchs um, through the scriptures, and then in the modern dispensation. Um, and this is not a plug for that book. It's not coming out anytime soon. It's going to take me a very long time. <laughs> but one thing that you said in a video, and I believe I commented on and had to go look it up afterwards, is there are some, I don't know if we call them sects of Judaism, um, but some branches of the religious aspect of Judaism uh, who very much believe that uh, when the Messiah comes and establishes his you know, reign as, as uh, king of Israel and um, what we would consider to be the second coming and the millennium, uh, all of the Israelites will be kind of divvied up into their specific tribe mm -hmm. and given specific responsibilities according to that tribe. And I have been able to find next to nothing discussing what those responsibilities or particular blessings might be. And I think we just don't know yet. Um, that's kind of where I, I, I'm I'm falling at the moment is. Um, but I, this idea of lineage and where we fall as designated by our patriarchal blessings seems to have not only a blessing associated with that lineage, but a responsibility as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we know Joseph, particularly Ephraim, um, but also Manasseh, is responsible in the present time for initiating the gathering of Israel. Um, th- this is this goes back to the Bible, even Ezekiel. Um, there, I can't remember which chapter it is, but it, it might be thirty-seven. Ezekiel, the Lord says to Ezekiel that uh, it will be Ephraim who I will call my firstborn, who will go out and be the initiator to gather and lead the lost tribes back to, um, back to Israel. And we have that a couple different places. Um, Genesis 49 with the, uh, essentially the patriarchal blessings given by Jacob to his 12 sons. Um, and then the chapters following where he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his, uh, and blesses them also. Um, we have several different instances throughout the Bible where it's very clear that Joseph has the the inheritance. He's he's the um, I don't want to say like chosen son, but basically he's he's the the one with the double portion of the inheritance. Um, and it's through Ephraim that the lost tribes will be gathered in the last days, preparatory for the coming of the Messiah. Um, that this this concept happens a, a few different places in the Old Testament, and it's made even more clear, I think, by the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and we we have several instances of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young referring to the Church, at least at their and during their day, as the Church of Ephraim or the Church of Joseph. Um, that the predominant uh, tribe that most of the membership of the church is from at that point was Ephraim. And I think to this day, most of the members of the church probably in the United States are from one of the tribes of Joseph. That's my personal thoughts. I'm open to being wrong about that. And I think think that's a pretty safe assumption. And and I just think that, um, you know, Joseph Smith was called by, by Brigham Young, a pure Ephraimite, um, Mm you know, the, the church was really initiated by those from the tribe of Ephraim. Um, the revelations were given to Joseph Smith um, and, and subsequent prophets who I would be really interested to know the, the tribes of the, of all of the presidents of the church since Joseph Smith. Yeah. Um, not that it would like really matter one way or the other in terms of their prophetic calling, but it would just be fun to see, um, if that changes over time and also the other quorum of the 12 members. Um, I know you did a video recently about David A. Bednar, Bednar being potentially a, a Jewish name um, or a European Jewish name and, and the possibility of maybe some of these um, quorum of the 12 members being from other tribes, like mm-hmm. maybe Levi in his case or Judah or something. Um, but it, th- there seems to be I guess I go off on tangents, but there seems to be uh, this concept of your patriarchal blessing is not just a, a guide for your life and and some uh, you know fun things that the Lord wants you to know about your life or blessings that He has for you, um, but the lineage part specifically is tied to a blessing and a responsibility, and I can't help but think that in the millennium when Christ is here, there's a reason we will know our lineage. 
Yeah. And there will be a, a further light knowledge given on what each of our responsibilities are during the millennium. And I have no idea what that will be, but that's kind of where I fall at the moment. Yeah. And I think you're right. And uh, almost certainly not just the millennium, but into the eternities, because it seems like the organizations that are here in some way will continue even into the celestial world. Um, we have very little information really about the organization, the structure, but like we do have a lot of terms, like for example, Christ will be king forever. <clears throat> uh, your children will be yours forever. And there, and there, it, it just seems like this organization continues into the eternities and it, it could be very, very profound, like beyond what we can really comprehend right now, maybe. So I think it is pretty profound. And um, I think that there's a lot of hints as to just how deep it really is. Cause like, even though it's not like our, our doctrine per se, when I was, again, when I, I, I did a video, why, cause I've always wondered why 12, why 12 tribes of Israel. And um, I think a lot of people kind of make the connection. Oh, we have 12 months during the year. We also have 12 main constellations through which the planets go called the Zodiac. And there might be something there. I talked to Rabbi Gerfin and the Jewish perspective is that there's 12 because the name of God is four letters. And if you rearrange the letters, you, you can only come up with uh, uh, 12 different rearrangements whether that's true or not i don't know uh the reason why is because in our church we have the concept of the pure adamic language which presumably is different from hebrew uh, maybe it's related i don't know i did point out that just like the jewish name for god um our pure adamic name pure adamic language name for god also seems to be made up of four different, sorry, not four different sounds, three different sounds, like Adam on Amen, Amen signifies God, and it's like, ah, mm, ah, and so there's like three sounds, but like four sounds, and so it's it's very similar to the Jewish name for God, which I don't, I, I don't like to say that name either, because they hold it holy, so I'm going to go, I'm going to do it too, but just the way, the number um, as well as the camp of Israel, how they were laid out, Judah in the east, Ephraim in the west, and it having to do with the direction. Like, I think there's a lot of order to all this stuff. And your place in that order is part of like a larger structure, something really grand. And we probably won't be filled in on all the details of that until later. But yeah, I don't think that it's just arbitrary or insignificant. I think it goes pretty deep and we just don't have it all yet. You you bring up an interesting point and I hadn't really put this together until you were talking. Um, this idea of... So, so we have the 144,000, which we, we talked about at length earlier um, and, and what that could possibly mean. Um, and then we were talking about this what, what responsibilities given out to each of the 12 tribes during the millennium and into eternity. Um, there's 
this concept in doctrine and covenants, and this is also where a lot of uh, a lot of us Latter Day Saints get the idea of the lost tribes being in one group and coming down across the ocean on a highway of ice and all this stuff, right? But this um, it specifically mentions in one of those verses that when they come with their prophets and their scripture, um, they'll give it to basically the church, um, and Ephraim will be crowned um, with his with his blessing or whatever. Um, I can't remember the exact verbiage in connection with the 144,000. I know this is kind of a long roundabout way to get back to that. Um, if anything that I've said, is at all correct about our interpretation or understanding of what the 144,000 means? If we think about the specific phrases used in the temple ceremonies we have washings and anointings we have the endowment um we have uh, baptisms for the dead obviously uh and reception of the holy ghost um but specifically for um most of us we think of the temple we think of the the initiatories the washing and sealings and or anointings and then we have the endowment and then the sealing ordinances there's a specific phrase used that comes up in those ordinances of a, a, a denotion of kings and priests, queens and priestesses unto the most high. Yeah. If the 144,000 are in any way connected with this idea that I kind of postulated earlier of those who had received the exaltative exaltative ordinances of the temple as being qualifications for the being one of the 144,000. Um, this also plays into the government of, of the church and the government of the Lord established during the millennium. I think the term, the terms Kings and Queens, priests and priestesses has a much more, uh, maybe literal meaning than I think we might presently think of. Oh yeah. And so yeah, I, yeah. there may be something to that as well. Um, there's going to be an important role to play for those of us who have received those ordinances and kept those covenants. Um, and, and that role may be in the grand scheme of thing during the millennium, the millennium may have something to do with the facilitation of that worldwide uh, government uh, of which Christ will be king. Yeah. Yes. That's something to think about. I, I, this is just me thinking, kind of putting things together as we're talking. So by no means should anybody take this as gospel. Um, but it, it is interesting to think about. Um, and there's this other... Ooh, I want to kind of wrap up with this because I don't want to take okay. you any, any longer. And I, I know you probably got things you got to do. Um, this idea of the fishers of men and the hunters of men. And we yeah. tend to associate this verse from uh, Jeremiah 16 with the 144,000 and that there's a separation or a distinction made between the fishers of men or just the everyday average missionary and the hunters of men and we associate them with like the 144,000. Um, and I could see why 
we might think that because when you read Jeremiah 16 leading up to those verses, it talks about the gathering of the lost tribes of Israel um, in the last days. And then it talks about sending the fishers and the hunters of men to gather them. And so I can see where we get this idea from, but I have not been able to see uh, really anywhere else in scripture or in like the lectures, uh, uh, journal discourses or uh, directly from a conference talk specifying these hunters of men as the same as the 144,000. And yeah. I'm curious, do, do you feel that there's the connection there? Do, do you see that connection or do you feel like they're, I, these are two different concepts? I, no, I, I don't see a connection at first. Um, before I researched it, I was like, oh, okay, that's something to look into. And uh, there are at least a handful of talks where they explicitly refer to the hunters being the current missionary force. Um, that's like one of those like lesser bits of information that I, I I don't rely on a whole lot, but I I've come across it and done a video including it, but I I'm pretty sure Jeffrey R. Holland has said it. I think Legrand Richards as well. In fact, he like repeated it like several times in his talks. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to find it right now, but, uh, but no, I feel like that's been explicitly said in uh, general conference a few times that it is referring to the current missionary force. Uh, I, I only ask because we do kind of tend to have this idea that there, that the, there's a distinction between the fishers and the hunters of men as being different from each other. And then associating the hunters of men as a higher or different calling than the fishers of men simultaneously with the difference between uh, a regular everyday average Latter-day Saint and the 144,000 that there's a, a separation of callings. Um, and they're both, if you think of fishers and hunters of men and the 144,000, they're all talking about essentially missionary work going out and gathering Israel, yeah, um, bringing them to the church of Christ. And um, my only thought is um I've become less and less convinced that the fishers and hunters of men are so different. But if there is a difference, and because the verse in Jeremiah does specify fishers of men and then the hunters of men, we would have to look at like, well, what's the difference between a fisher and a hunter? And does that have any relevance? The only thing I could really think of that makes any sense at all to me and you can tell me what you think is the, the fishers would be basically casting their nets, trying to catch anything that comes into their nets that they can bring into the fold. Um, and the hunters are specifically stalking their prey. Mm -hmm. um, if that's, if that's the case, if that's what Jeremiah is kind of getting at those, that distinction there, um, it would make more sense to me that the hunters are those who are doing genealogy work, who are hunting for the names of their ancestors to bring to the temple. Um, and if there is a distinction there and there is a connection between the hunters of men and the 144,000, then as we've already kind of 
uh, talked about the 144,000 being those who are um, fully endowed, sealed members of the church in the having been through the, the temple ordinances. Our primary object, objective with the temple now for us is to bring our names, names of family members of, of deceased ancestors, relatives to the temple. And we're specifically, if you're doing that kind of work, that genealogy work, you're really looking for specific names and specific people in your lineage, um, in your genealogy to bring to the temple. And so it's not uh, just cast my net and just see, oh, here's a name of some random person. Here's a name of some random person. Let me bring him to the temple. It's no, these are my ancestors. These are my relatives that I'm looking for and searching for to bring to the temple. Um, that would be my only connection with the hunters of men being separate from the fishers and also simultaneously connected to the 144,000, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're tying in the 144,000, yeah, that it makes sense. Um, I don't know that I've seen any like quotes from any, anybody saying that it does make sense though. Um, now, if it, if it doesn't necessarily have to do with the 144,000, you could say that there, there's basically two types of missionary work. There's the type where you're tracking, you're actually like looking for people, but then there's also the type where you just have people that on their own, they find the church website or they walk onto temple square and they talk to the sister missionaries. And that's a little bit more like fishing. Uh, so, but I can't say authoritatively, um, all I can say, maybe, maybe I'm, I can find it really quick. If, if you have just a moment, sure. we should be able to find this really fast. Let's see general conference. I'm just going to type in hunters. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, LeGrand Richards. Okay. He says, okay. So this is October general conference, 1981. LeGrand Richards be prepared is the name of the talk. And he says, you remember the words of the prophet Jeremiah. He said the day would come when it would no longer be said, quote, the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from all the hand, the lands whither he had driven them, end quote, and that he would send for many fishers and they would fish them and for many hunters and they would hunt them from the hills and from the mountains and from the holes in the rocks. That's the 30,000 missionaries scattered throughout the world, gathering in scattered Israel. And so it looks like in LeGrand Richard's mind, uh, both the fish, the fishers and the hunters is simply the missionary work that's going on right now. And this other scripture, this is another one that's used <laughs> a lot by the, the main group camp uh, because they say, well, no, it's got to be like, what's going to happen uh, in the latter days is going to be so much more marvelous and so much more incredible, but it doesn't, it doesn't say that in the scripture at all. It just says that we're not going to be talking anymore about God delivering Israel from Egypt, but now we're going to start talking about this gathering of Israel from wherever they've been driven. Um, and I, you know, I feel like a broken record because I've said that a million times on the channel, but you know, the Jews today, 
when they celebrate their feast days, specifically Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Shavuot, which is the Feast of Weeks, as well as the Feast of Tabernacles, those particular holidays are to commemorate the Exodus. That's something that they still do today, but we don't do that as a restored church. Now what we do, and President Nelson wrote a talk about this, where he drew the parallels between the Exodus and the Pioneer Trek. And he he pointed out this scripture, how nowadays we're not doing, we're not, you know, celebrating the the Exodus, the original Exodus so much. Now we like celebrate the pioneers and the, the trek. You know, we even have a pioneer day. There's parades. There's um, in Utah. They, they It's an actual holiday um, on the 24th of July. And so like that's come to pass because now we're we're focusing on what's been happening this dispensation, this incredible gathering uh, that started, you know, with Joseph Smith and and Brigham Young. And in the article or in the talk, uh, President Nelson compares uh, Brigham Young to Moses because he was the one that mostly led the saints on their trek to Utah. So. Yeah, and even um, people outside the church throughout history have kind of referred to Brigham Young as like the Latter-day Saint uh, Moses. Yeah. Um, so, no, that makes perfect sense to me because it's, it's so true. We we have Pioneer Day. We, we talk about our pioneer heritage so often in the church. And are they not from the tribes of Israel? Are they not coming into the fold of God and, and um, being essentially partakers of that process of gathering Israel? I, so I, to me, no, that makes absolute perfect sense. Well, in the part that many people struggle with is like, they, they think about the Exodus and how Moses parted the Red Sea. And so the logic goes that no, now there's going to be something like even bigger than that. And it's usually referring to them coming across the highway that's cast up from the deep. And so they're picturing like another very like miraculous event like that. But you could, you could call what we're doing right now miraculous by what we're doing. Because if you were to take an Israelite uh, that was following Moses and you brought him forward into time and he could see us traveling on planes and trains using the internet, like how you and me are talking right now. Like this would look like magic to him. Like, yes, the, the parting of the Red Sea, that's that is incredible. But the things that we're doing now, how we're going across the entire world with ease, you know, compared to like back those days, like uh, uh, some one of them traveling to China would have been a very difficult trip. Like you could do it, but not the way that we do it now. And just like the effort that's going in just this massive, massive work that we're doing. And then on top of that, we have all these temples, whereas back then all they had was the tabernacle, but now we're, we're coming up on like 300, whatever temples. So it is more incredible and it is more spectacular now, but that's not what it says in that scripture. It doesn't say anything about being more incredible or spectacular. It just says, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Now we're going to be talking about this. So anyway. Well, and I, I think even, even to that point, if we were going to say that um, this has to be on par with the ex the Israelite exodus from Egypt in terms of like the grand um, miracle of it, 
the parting of the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, all these things. Um, I I would argue that if we look through our church's history, from the conception of the church in 1830 and and with the Book of Mormon prior coming forth, how that all came about was was that not miraculous? Was was the um, restoration of the priesthood not miraculous? Uh, were the individual journeys of these pioneers, who many of them came from Europe, was their journey not miraculous? Uh, the the we have an entire movie called Seventeen Miracles, uh, about the Willie and uh, Martin Handcart Company, um, just them and the miracles that they saw on their way out west, and so. I think if we really did our homework and wanted to sit down and look through the history of all these uh, pioneers and, and what they went through, I, I would, I would see miracle after miracle. And is, is that not miraculous on par with anything the Lord would have done with ancient Israel? I, I tend to think so. Yeah. In fact, they even had a parallel experience where um, well, they didn't get mana, but they were saved one time. I, I don't know the exact, like what hand cart company it was or exactly who it was, but there was a group of them that were saved because the same type of quail that Israel ate, uh, before they re started receiving mana, they, they got the, they got, they were saved by quail. And then once they got to the, you know, Salt Lake Valley, there was the whole thing with the crickets, which sounds like a biblical story and, yeah, frankly, it kind of was with and then the seagulls came and miraculously saved them. So, yeah, lots of miracles, lots, lots, lots of miracles. Well, uh, I don't want to take you any longer. I think this has been a really fun um, discussion and I could keep talking about this kind of stuff forever. Oh, yeah. Me too. Um, so I, I want to say thank you very much for coming on and, and talking with me. I'd love to talk to you again in the future. Yeah. And if you'd be open to it, I would love to have a round table discussion with you and Troy Abels, and maybe we can get uh, Palmer on there as well. Um, I have a couple topics in mind that I'd love be to talk to you guys about, because I think each one of you would have a, a little bit different perspective on. Um, so if you'd be open to that in the future, I'd love to do something like that as well. Yeah, that'd be fine. Awesome. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, this has been an exciting uh, episode, I think, for all of us, myself included. I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, thank you very much, Jared, for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Um, for anybody who's listening to this, who is listening from my channel, By Way of Commandment, um, please go and look up Christian Homestead on YouTube. That's where you'll find Jared and all his videos, which he puts up literally daily. Um, there is there is never a dearth of uh, videos on his channel. There's always something fun and cool to listen to and to watch. Um, and go and subscribe to him, like his videos. Um, and also, for those of you listening, uh, maybe from your channel as well, if you like this conversation and you'd like to hear me a little bit more, I'm going to plug myself. Sorry. Um, no, my channel I'll, is... I'll put your channel on my featured channels so people can find you that way. And I'll also put the link for your channel in the description below. Same, same. Likewise. Um, so 
uh, for those of you listening from his channel, my channel is called By Way of Commandment. Um, I've just started on YouTube. Most of my prior episodes were all um, audio only. So this kind of is a new thing for me as well, getting used to the the video aspect of the podcast as well. So um, please bear with me as you see my older episodes are just audio, but they're all now uploaded to YouTube as well at By Way of Commandment.